Well, on July 17th, 1996, off the coast of Long Island, TWA Flight 800 exploded just 12 minutes after takeoff from JFK Airport en route to Paris. It is and was the third deadliest aviation accident in U.S. history. Four years of investigations later show that a short circuit caused a fuel tank explosion that ripped off the entire front half of the plane and caused the whole aircraft to strangely tumble into the Atlantic Ocean, killing everyone on board, about 240 people. Months later, I was in the fourth grade and standing in the lunch line, where I was fearful of my parents, who were about to take off later that morning, flying to St. Louis, and I remarked to my fourth grade teacher that I was nervous and somewhat scared, as much as a fourth grader is willing to admit on the, in the lunch line, that I was scared that my parents might fly on TWA. And my teacher very calmly but very directly looked right into my eyes and said, God is completely in control of every bolt on your parents' plane. Two years later, I was at Boy Scout camp where you could attend chapel every morning for a daily devotional from a preacher. And I'll never forget the morning where he was explaining that God wants us to be our best, even when things seem to be out of God's control. Quote, do you remember TWA Flight 800, he asked us? I don't think God wanted that to happen. I don't think he would allow that to happen. But you can still trust him, even though he doesn't control everything. Well, one of these people, according to your sound, is wrong. <laughs> Everything he said was certainly wrong, and our scriptures help clarify that. Titling my sermon, Signaled Sovereignty, I hope that you will see that as the Lord winds down his plagues, he is also winding up his signals for why and how he's doing to Egypt and, for he's, and to whom he's doing it for. And I think that this text, like so many others in the scriptures, show the listener and the reader that the Lord is sovereign over everything. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 6 all the way through, starting in verse 1. The Lord says to us in his word, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will try, drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of your people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of his people. Verse 4, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that they may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And in verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Here we see the warning of the 10th and final plague. Moses reveals some interesting things to us as the author of this text. And before we get into the main bulk of the outline that you might have in front of you, I'm going to give you four interesting things as an intro or as a second intro before seeing four things about God from this text, which will be the bulk of the sermon. So first thing, this is the first time here in chapter 11 that the Hebrew word for plague is used. Now in your English Bibles, plague has been used before, I think four times is what it shows in the English text, but here, interestingly, this is the first time that plague is used. Second, the the subtlety of the drama in this passage is incredible. The the literature of the text does show Moses leaving the court, but more of a continued conversation from chapter 10. So the day hasn't changed, the scenes haven't changed, the characters haven't changed, except for one. The Lord is now speaking to Moses in the sight of Pharaoh. And if you know anything about ceremonial figures of kings, they would allow no one to turn their back towards them and listen to someone else for in the king's court there is one man who speaks and everyone else is speaking to an audience of one yet here interestingly nothing exchanged except now the voice of Yahweh is echoing in the halls of Pharaoh remember Moses is a prince of Egypt and I think he considers Pharaoh's unending sin here as tragic because we see in our text where, where he kind of leaves the scene in a hot anger, it says. I think, I think it's just describing, humanly speaking, what he's experiencing where he sees Pharaoh's sin and Pharaoh's wickedness as, as needless. If he would just respond to what the Lord says, then, then all of these deaths could be avoided and all of these plagues could be avoided, but in his hard heart and in his evil ways, he just won't listen to the Lord. And, and Moses is just put off by it. And third, the threat of the 10th plague shows the seriousness of God's desire for his people and his vindicating justice for his name to be hallowed. At midnight, firstborns will die And it's something that's never been seen before in the world. The powerful plagues before are but a shadow to this heightened sense and force of judgment. There's no demand to release the Israelites. He doesn't give them an alternative. He just says, this is going to happen. And everyone will cry. And then fourth, this text and these plagues show us that God is completely Sovereign over everything. His mercies and his justices are his personal choices. His desire for mercy is discriminate and his desire for justice is precise. So in connecting this now to the main points of the sermon, what we see here is this overwhelming picture of a sovereign God who is not to be messed with And who is sovereign over everything. And I think as you just glean from the text and see things rising from the text, there are four things that we see about God's sovereignty. The first one is the first on your outline, that our God 
is the God of the future. Our God is the God of the future. I hope that when you read a text like this, you see things that show the direction of the voice that speaks. Some of this, Moses recalls back from Exodus 3. So the first three verses are a recalling back of what's been previously said. Some of this longs forward to what what God will do. We see that in verses 4 through verses 8. And then some will also recall back. We see that in verses 9 through 10, where this is a repeated pattern of what Pharaoh would do and what God is calling him to do. So more than anything, I hope you see the foundation of the text. The calm, sovereign voice of the Lord. So I'm going to read a couple of verses, and I'm going to emphasize a couple of words, and I hope that you see and listen to the power that is being shown to the hearer from the speaker. So verse 1, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. In verse 4, scan down about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. In verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. In verse 8, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And then finally in verse 9, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Within these verses, there's geography. There's characters, there's promises, there's actions, there's hard hearts, there's open minds, there's prophetic words, but do not overlook the certain power that is behind the sovereign sound that says words about what will come about according to the purpose and for the glory of the Lord. Nine times the Lord has taken action to do things that seemed impossible to the world, bringing about awarenesses that seemed unimaginable. And and now a tenth time, something terrifying is being spoken to an audience of a belittled king and his doubting servants. The drama should show a heightened tension in the courtroom, but the real moment to capture in all of this is the one who perfectly displayed his glory and rule in the past is now a tenth time speaking of how he will reign in the future. The God we know, the God of Pharaoh, now knows is sovereign. And he's sovereign not just about current circumstances, but he's sovereign about every instance in the future. And when he declares what should happen, it does happen. Future victories of his prediction become current battles by his hand only to become past conquests when he's finished. Now I spent like five minutes writing that sentence yesterday, so I'm going to read it again. (laughs) Future victories of the Lord's prediction become current battles by his hand only to become past conquests when he's finished. His sovereignty is over every ounce that's being exuded from his glory. But also take note of the fact that God not only foretells the future, but reasons and resolves all that is to come. The divine I in this passage, I will bring upon Pharaoh. This is not some sort of practical process like like you bring on the screen or the spring if you clean out your gutters or if you wash your windows or wash your car, it will most certainly rain the next day. This is the Lord's supernatural intervening activity. And you see it in verse four as well. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. God is the active instrument 
God is the means. God is the only one who is sovereign in this circumstance. But when this passage, but what this passage entails is not just a forewarning, but also specific. So it's not just generalities at play, but also specific things. It's not vague hope or uncertain comments about what could happen, not at some point in time after some things happen, something may or may not happen, then someday Egypt might be judged, but there are specifics, like a specific when at midnight, or a specific what, the death of the firstborn, a specific where in Egypt, uh, towards a specific whom, each family, and even all the animals. In a specific result, a great outcry throughout the land, such as there has never been. The Lord tells Moses what will happen, when it will happen, and how it will happen. And not only that, but the Lord says that he's going to bring it about. My power will bring this future to fulfillment, he responds to Pharaoh's wickedness. Now, Douglas K. Stewart, a commentator on this passage, says Moses was writing this story not merely to help his fellow Israelites trust Yahweh as things happened to them, but to help them learn to trust that Yahweh is the one who makes things happen in the first place as part of his great redemptive plan for the benefit of his people. So I hope that you see the necessity of the Lord's sovereignty over every little piece in the future when you think of the weight and the circumstances that occur so naturally in your own life. It's not merely just trust God when things are happening to you. God will do something to you in this trial. Don't freak out. He's in control of your day, but also we need to remember that he is in control of tomorrow. Our text helps us understand that God is not someone to just be trusted with your day, but also your tomorrow. Genesis 50, verse 20 says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about. God was not just rearranging life as it was unfolding before him, but instead he was arranging it according to his understanding, according to his good word, and carrying it out for his own good purpose. God is sovereign over the future. The God that we worship with our whole hearts is the God of the future. And thinking through this point and thinking through some people in my own life and even thinking through my own life, I'm compelled to ask you how this truth, that God is the God of the future, how it can inspire your own prayer life. Not just praying about what you're currently going through, but maybe you're a little timid or nervous about what you feel like you might go through. And are you entrusting yourself to the Lord within that? So I have three ways that might help you as you might pray about the future to the God of the future, the first one is be critical. I don't mean be critical of God. I'm trying to use three C's, so I'm saying be critical, but what I mean is be specific. Don't just pray in generalities. Lord, my my wedding is four months away and just be part of it, but rather the specifics of that. Second, be contextual. If you're a single person and you want to be married, It is good for you to pray to the Lord of the future about your singleness and about your desires to be married and and allow him to, to bring you in alignment with his will. If you have kids, it would be contextual for you to pray about your kids. You know, it makes sense when you think, oh, who is around me? And how can I be specific within that context? And how I can entrust myself to the Lord of the future? And then third, be confident. He is the God of the future. 
there's a great short writing. Well, it's not short, but it's by Martin Luther, so of course it's not short. Where he encourages people that the amen at the end of their prayer should be the proudest and boldest amen that they ever speak in their lives. Because they are praying to the God of the universe. The God who knew everything from a long time ago and the God who knows everything about the future. Friends, we worship and we see in this text that God is not to be trifled with because he is the God of the future, but also God is to be worshiped and to be trusted and to be rested in because he is the God of the future. Number two, he is the God of his enemies. He is the God of the enemies or his enemies. When we think about Pharaoh as God's enemy, we have to remember Pharaoh's power and and his own past, in his own prestige, someone who was incredibly impressive on his own accord, faced with Moses, who isn't really that much of a threat. Not known for being impressive, not this young, charismatic, cool leader, but but an 80-year-old man who is speaking on behalf of slaves and, and was known for not being very winsome. Yet he's talking to the most powerful man known, revered, according to the Egyptians, as the sons or as the son of the gods. A man who sees himself as divine and who is worshipped as someone who is divine and is ruling over everything the eyes can see. But, but Pharaoh was, was oh so small when not just faced up against Moses, but when fully and truly faced up against the Lord. The Lord promises to bring a tenth and final plague. Now, already defeated in many ways, this last plague would bring death and defeat, but not just against Pharaoh, but also, like in plagues past, more known false gods, the gods of Egypt. This plague was probably known and recognized after it occurred as against the god of the dead, Osiris, or the god of the underworld, Anubis. A kingdom that takes great care to prepare people for an afterlife, through things like ceremonial burials and gigantic mausoleums like the the great pyramids of Egypt putting more God and riches in tombs than they ever spent on their actual life. Now these people who place gold and riches in their tombs are powerless against the God who is the God of his enemies. With Easter just weeks away, it's, it's hard to not think about the spiritual and physical significance of what death actually means. The, the church culture now is in a season of thinking about death because we are, we are trying to focus our aim towards the death of the Son of God and what that meant for us and the world. And so with Easter in our midst, you must remember that there is only one way that we can conquer death, and it's not by any of our doing, even though it will come to us all. And that placing your life, your total trust in the hands of the one who defeated death himself is the only way that you can encounter death boldly. Not putting your hope in some giant awesome pyramid full of gold and riches that weird people 2,000 years later would discover and not sell off. But rather placing your trust in the one who defeated death by the death of his son Rather than pyramids or mausoleums or jeweled out burials, Christ Jesus, the real king, the king of Israel, says that he is the way and the truth and the life and everything else will receive the full judgment of the Lord and everyone will wail. In terrifying, sad, and dramatic fashion, death prevailed over Egypt and Pharaoh as God promised. 
And though it seems rather harsh, the the punishment actually fits the crime that Egypt brought on themselves a son for a son. These are people who wanted to kill the firstborn of all Israel. And remember God's words to Moses in Exodus 4, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. They brought this on themselves, and there is only one who can finish it by himself, a sovereign God who is sovereign and the God over his enemies. Now, they had warnings. They had time. For 400 years, God's people were enslaved, and and so God's enemies encounter now a jealous God, one who comes to deliver his children from their own captivity. And by the 10th plague, he was not going to be silent. His wrath would visit them in such a way that cries were heard throughout the land. And to the world, he gives this warning. And the same warning needs to be received by us today. He is the God of his enemies. And and no one outside of his love will survive. And in the same way, everyone within his love will endure to the last day. People encounter God and see him with indifference. And here, our Lord presents himself as someone who cannot be trifled with. Someone who must make his attention known. He's willing to go into the courtroom of Pharaoh himself and not even give him the courtesy of speaking right to him, but speaking to his own servant, Moses, knowing that Pharaoh could hear. One last note in this category is that God is also the God of Pharaoh. So within him being the God of his enemies, he's also the God of Pharaoh. Now what this doesn't say is that Moses is the God of Pharaoh. We're not the God of Pharaoh. We're not the God of our enemies. God is sovereign over his enemies, but we are not. We are not in the business of bringing about his justice or his wrath or even his plagues. But remember what Moses was being used for. He was, he was a mouthpiece or a prophet to evil by signaling and signifying God's true name so that everyone may bow down. So you and I have an opportunity in our daily lives. When we encounter those who oppose the Lord, we have opportunity to make the Lord's name known through our actions, through our words, through our love, through us being near them. Because we recognize that what's coming for them is something that if we love them, we don't want them to go through. Remember the the huff and the puff that Moses left this courtroom with. He was upset because people that used to be his people are disregarding the name of the Lord and trying to oppose the name of the Lord. So you and I must remember that God is the God of his enemies and we must make him known to them. So first, our God is the God of the future and the God of his enemies. And now third, he is the God of the people or he is the God of his people. Third thing rising up from the passage about God is that he is the God of the people. He's not far away. He's not uninterested. He's not passive. The God of the scriptures is the God of the people. It's so comforting that God's work for God's glory includes his work on behalf of his people. And his people have been cuffed by Pharaoh, but God comes to deliver his own people. Your scriptures look at verse 2 and 3, and they describe that, that, he's given, that Moses has been given favor amongst the Egyptians. 
And even Moses' people are shown favor amongst the Egyptians. This is a staggering text showing how hardened Pharaoh has become compared to his own people. Some Egyptians we see get it. They're recognizing what the Lord is doing. Maybe out of fear. Maybe they just want the, the Israelites to just get out of town. But they would go door to door and they would receive silver and gold. And what's amazing here is they leave town rich. Those who ironically were in bondage and in slavery by, by God's sovereign hand bringing them out of Egypt. They're the ones now with money in their pockets. They weren't stealing from the Egyptians but the Egyptians were giving them gold. This is an unpredictable outcome for us as we read this story, but, but God is a God for his people. He is showering his blessing on his people, reminding them that not only is he delivering them, but he is providing for them. And even though they will doubt later on, can he still provide for us? He, he puts up reminders here and there that he is sovereign even over their money here. Along these lines, look at verse 7. It's an interesting thing to think through. It says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So the Hebrew would say that the dog wasn't barking at the Israelites. That's what it, that it, that's what it means to convey. Dogs then weren't things, though, you run around with at the park. Dogs, dogs in that culture weren't things that you would ever let, lick your face. You certainly wouldn't give them their own Instagram account. Dogs in that culture were distasteful. They were gross. They were spreaders of diseases. But they were also everywhere, trying to pillage everything, effectively ruining everything. Now I want you to imagine sitting in your backyard, having a cup of coffee with your favorite book and a fire pit in your midst, truly like my dream morning. Now imagine a neighbor moves next door and has a gigantic barking dog who loves to see you every morning. And he never stops barking. He never leaves you alone. He even jumps up with his two hands or arms or whatever you call dog's hooves, jumps up on the cinder block and he looks right at you, going after your face, not wanting you to have a good day. That would ruin everything about that. You wouldn't want coffee anymore. You wouldn't want a book anymore. You certainly wouldn't want a fire pit anymore. Or maybe a different analogy is you taking your own dog on a walk and things are seemingly good until every gate has a dog barking at yours, carrying on. There are not enough podcasts in the, war, in the world that can, that can drown out the noise of what used to be your nice walk. Now in the context of our passage, the tenth plague, amid darkness, firstborns were dying. From the throne's child to the slave's child, there are great cries throughout all the land, but for the Israelites. Like how everyone just experienced three days of pure darkness, except for them, they wouldn't even, in this case, have a dog wagging his tongue at them. The distinction that God has for his people and against his enemies is uniquely shown through this coming plague where he is showing terror on those who deserved it, and he is providing comfort for all of those who are within his mercy and grace. Now, along these lines, do you remember what it was like to play at recess or maybe in gym class when it was time to line up and pick teams? It was a stressful time. I imagine it's stressful for you. It's certainly stressful for me. I was never good enough at basketball to ever be a team captain, much less ever be picked second. 
And the idea that I would be picked on the wrong team was haunting. I don't want to play with those guys, but the idea that you wouldn't even be picked at all, like you're the odd guy on an even team system. Maybe you're not the tallest, or maybe you're not the fastest, or maybe that person picking you just doesn't like you. But when you read the Bible, I think you'll see time and time again where the Lord sovereignly picks his people. And it's not from their doing. It's not because they look a certain way or have some kind of potential. But he desires to be close to those whom he desires to be close to. And he sovereignly, by his own hand, draws them very close to himself. Now I hope our lives reflect that our God is the God of his people. That each day we choose to respond to his deliverance of us from darkness to light. Now growing up in the late 80s and 90s, a popular thing to ask as a form of evangelism were, if you were to die today and stood before a holy God, what would you say? And the question is trying to show you the magnitude of God, his glory and his holiness and your sin and unworthiness of even standing before that Lord. And so you needed to have an answer for why he would let you in the pearly gates. And I get the question and it should be asked and it certainly should be answered, but, but can't you imagine standing there as someone who was bought by the blood of Christ and regenerated by the power of the Spirit, standing before the electing Father, how can our words be anything other than, why me? Remember the grace that the Lord shows, because he is the God of his people. The planning of the God for his people, the provision of God for his people, the protection of God for his people ought to turn our affections, their affections from themselves, from ourselves to him continually. Now later on, God's people will struggle to trust him entirely and, and you probably do today. Maybe, maybe your life is like a daily situation where the rug is just pulled out from under you. Or maybe there are multiple rugs every day that are pulled out from under you, but your trust is not in vain, Christian. Remind yourself that the God of the future, the God of his enemies, is also the God of his people. He picked you for himself, for all time. Our God muzzles the mouths of creatures for the sake of his name to be known and his people to be cherished and comforted. The sovereign God is on your side. Our God is the God of his people. Fourth. Our God, lastly, is the God of the heart. Finally, this morning, we come to the last point where the Lord's sovereignty is shown as it addresses the heart. From it, we see that God is signaling that he is the God of the heart. And this is one of the, one of the most difficult and heavy theological topics of Exodus. The issue of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart here presents itself yet again. So we deal with it joyfully. And is God to blame for Pharaoh's heart? Why is Moses even needed if God is so powerful? Why were Pharaoh's words recorded for us if we know that God will do God's will anyway? Were Moses' appeals to Pharaoh pointless? Well, to answer some of those tensions that you might find in the text or find in conversations or maybe even find in your own heart, let me survey some patterns of the passages up to this point. Hard-heartedness within Exodus progresses 
as it unfolds. There are three things that I want to set as a survey. The first one are the predictions. There are two predictions that the Lord will make where Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. You see that in Exodus 4 and in Exodus 7. Number two, Pharaoh is completely active in his own sins. In the early plagues, in every case through chapter 9, Pharaoh either makes his heart stubborn or his heart is described merely as already being stubborn. Sometimes Pharaoh makes his heart hardened in response to relief from a plague, and sometimes he is unbending either before or in the process of a plague. So first, predictions. The Lord said it would happen. Number two, Pharaoh is active in his own sins. And then number three, helping show this progress, God is active in his purpose through and by Pharaoh. In the latter plagues, the Lord makes Pharaoh's heart stiff. It's clear that in the latter, more severe plagues, the Lord is represented as firming Pharaoh's own willful, sinful resolve. This makes Pharaoh hold on to the strongest desire that Pharaoh already has. In the face of all these calamities or plagues, he continues to fight against the Lord to the very end. And in some cases, we see that the Lord takes already a hard or a stiff neck, if you would, and, and continues to make it stiffer. Now, you must also realize that you can view Pharaoh's hardness through two lenses or two perspectives. The first one, and we're just going to have like nine lifts of 20 different things, so good luck to all the note takers. But the first perspective is that of salvation history, meaning that God is the absolute deliverer and exclusive deliverer of Israel. God did what he did so that in no way could anyone ever say that Israel fled Egypt because Egypt was nice and just let them go, or Israel was heroic and got out of the fence somehow on their own. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for the purpose of glorifying himself by personally delivering Israel and defeating this brutal Egypt on behalf of Israel and for his own glory. This means that, remember, back to Exodus 5, that it was God versus Pharaoh. So God is aiming to defeat Pharaoh and using any means he desires in order to defeat Pharaoh to bring himself greater glory, and he chooses to do so by hardening Pharaoh's heart in some places. Pharaoh wasn't nice, keep that in mind. Egypt wasn't strong, keep that in mind. Israel wasn't clever or, or courageous, keep that in mind. But through this lens of salvation history, we see that the Lord exclusively is at work in people's hearts. The second perspective is one of personal responsibility. So I think most people can accept the first perspective and go, yeah, that's just what the Bible clearly says. The second one is of personal responsibility where people might get tripped up on. If God made Pharaoh's heart stubborn, what does it say about Pharaoh's own free will? Now, Exodus' answer for that is that God is completely sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the work of his own people. He's sovereign over his enemies. He's sovereign over his plans because he is the God of the future. The works of his own enemies are known by him and are part of his plan. Now on the flip side of that, imagine if God did not know what his enemies were up to and was not in charge of who his enemies were. That is a horror film that none of us ever want to watch, much less be a part of. 
The works of his own enemies are known by him. God's hands through the plagues and through the deliverance show him to be a mighty redeemer in spite of his enemies being awful sinners. Even though man has full responsibility for his words and his ways, man, here track with me, even though man is responsible for our own words and our own ways, man, because of our darkened hearts that we would see in Exodus 9 and 10, man still needs an outside authority to deliver us from our hardness. And in this, all credit belongs to the Lord. So salvation history and personal responsibility, though they seem like they're rubbing up against each other, are actually clearly displaying that the Lord is is sovereign over man's heart. And if you accept that Exodus is primarily, primarily concerned to display God's people being delivered entirely by a merciful sovereign God and that the hardness of Pharaoh's heart was part of the Lord's power and sovereignty over wickedness, then personal responsibility becomes an easier category to fathom. It is the Lord at work. And it's hard for us to realize that sometimes because we often want to place ourselves as a character of the story. Our God is not bound by time, but works within it and sees all things as determined by himself. And scripturally, this doesn't mean man's decisions are not free and genuine. God has everything entirely within his control and plan, even when the decisions of the people come into play. Remember my fourth grade teacher, Judy Young's words, there is not one bolt that God does not have control over. Think back to Exodus 5. Because this is crucial to remember. In this text, Moses makes a request for the Israelite slaves to go into the wilderness for a religious ceremony. And Pharaoh replies with dishonor, sarcasm, and cruelty. He calls them lazy. Our scriptures don't show that this, though, was caused by the Lord. Nor does it say that it was outside of his plan and purpose. It reveals mostly the hardness of Pharaoh's already established heart in the scene. In occasions like this, Pharaoh is Instantly cruel and cold. And this view of him sets the stage for his stubbornness in the midst of plagues. What I'm suggesting without any prodding or motion from God, Pharaoh resisting the Lord and hold the Lord's people captive is all of Pharaoh's fault. His responsibility and his opportunity to show wickedness was coming out of his already existing heart. Now think forward to Exodus 10. Last week, Pharaoh is belittled. And in this and other cases, God is said to fortify Pharaoh's determination, to stiffen it up, it seems like. God was giving Pharaoh over to his own desires, it would say, as plagues were going to come still. We see a similar pattern being written about by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, where Gentiles were opposed to God's ways and give themselves over to sensual sin on their own. But also it says that God gives them over to their own sinful instincts. Ryan, weeks ago, used the analogy of a magnet. And it's like we are pressing up towards a magnet because we are attracted to it. And in some ways, we see God withholding us by his mercy and grace from this. And in other ways, he gives people over to their sin. And they succumb so quickly to the magnet. God didn't force them there. Nor was he absent. As God gave those Gentiles over to the fullness of the wicked path they desired, so too God gave Pharaoh 
over to the fullness and his evilness to the Israelites and to the Lord. Pharaoh is willing and desiring to do what is evil. He is not the good character in this story. Pharaoh isn't calling on the Lord saying, help me, I can't help myself. It's like when your kids play with you and they're like, my hand is going to get my face. I just am not in control of my hand. That's not what Pharaoh's doing. He wants to kill babies everywhere. And he wants to enslave them forever. But God is the God of the heart. Now, trying to explain this and even all of us aiming to grasp this doesn't make it an easier pill to swallow. Because the scriptures tell Christians that our hearts we're in need of something. Remember what the apostle also said when he's describing people who clearly had been given over to their sensual ways and their sinful desires. He says, such were some of you, but by the grace of God, the Lord delivered you from that pursuit. You were on a highway to hell and you had no brake paths. And the Lord sovereignly stops you dramatically. God saving you looks to the world like him taking you out of Egypt and delivering you to the promised land. And how that's done is him not improving your life or giving you a little pep talk, but by dramatically, permanently, passionately, lovingly giving you a new heart. What we need is not an improved heart, but a transplant. And so then we respond, not as how we would, but now how the Spirit directs faith in Christ Jesus to forgive us of our sins, to deliver us from evil and to display as a child of the king who conquers sin and death forever and ever. And this work in your life isn't too hard for the God who turns the Nile into blood or holds back the sunlight for three days on those he chooses. He didn't need 10 plagues, but he raised up one Pharaoh, this hardened Pharaoh, and continued to harden his heart so that he would have the occasion, the Lord, to show his glory to a watching world of what it means to disobey his word and what it can mean to obey his word and be delivered to righteousness. He hardened Pharaoh's heart for us. In one sense, so that we would know what to do with ours, to entrust him with it. Well, as we conclude in Christ, we know that our God is for us, not against us. And by Christ, we know that God is against his enemies and will bring about judgment upon them. So I would ask you and I would encourage you to to answer in the positive nature. Do you see the sovereign hand of the Lord at work in these chapters? It was in judgment and salvation through the later Passover's death of the firstborn, that God would more fully make himself known to the world and to his people. This is what we ultimately see on the cross, where in Christ, in the death of the Son of God, judgment was poured out on him, even though we deserved it being poured out on us. And salvation was secured for God's greater glory and our eternal gain. At the Passover, death came upon the firstborns except those who obeyed the Lord's word. But at the cross, God did not spare his own son. For Christ himself was the sacrifice that we couldn't be for ourselves because he was the life that we couldn't live by ourselves. And and he was risen in ways that we 
would not be able to be raised. Our God, our Lord, is the God of the future, is the God of his enemies, is the God of his people, and is the God of everyone's heart. And in him and by him, all things might be brought about for the building up and the setting apart of those who know him, who love him, who are called by him, by his will and power. And so the response for us is to recognize where we stand. Where do we stand in the sight of the God of the future? Is he the God of us as his enemy? Is he the God of us as one of his own people? Have our hearts been transformed or transplanted by his grace? He calls all of us to respond to him in faith and repentance. He calls all of us to look to him as, as one who is truly rich, who is truly powerful, who is truly graceful in the midst of looking behind us where everything that man trusted in was just belittled like a sandcastle after a big rain. And so our response is to worship him as we ought, regardless of what's in front of us, because our God is sovereign and in any other way, we wouldn't trust him. But because he is sovereign, we give our whole lives to him. Let's pray. Father, we call out to you in joy because of the salvation that you brought to us by the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. We know that when we read texts like this, we can't not think of the love that you showed to us on the cross. And so we are grateful forever because of what you have done for your people. And we ask that you will continue to sanctify us and form us into Christ-likeness that you deserve. May we be holy because you are holy. May we be loving because you are loving. May we be changed because you changed us. And may we worship you because you deserve all glory and honor from all of our lives. Father, we pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus. Amen. Let us stand and respond.